0: Chapter 5 of Stoicism by George Stock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. Stoicism by George Stock. Chapter 5 Physic. We have now before us the main facts with regard to the Stoic view of man's nature but we have yet to see in what setting they were put. What was the Stoic outlook upon the universe? The answer to this question is supplied by their physic. There were, according to the Stoics, two first principles of all things, the active and the passive. The passive was that unqualified being, which is known as matter. The active was the logos, or reason in it, which is God. This, it was held, eternally pervades matter and creates all things. This dogma, laid down by Zeno, was repeated after him by the subsequent heads of the school. There were then two first principles, but there were not two causes of things. The active principle alone was cause, the other was mere material for it to work on, inert, senseless, destitute in itself of all shape and qualities, but ready to assume any qualities or shape. Matter was defined as that out of which anything is produced. The prime matter, or unqualified being, was eternal, and did not admit of increase or decrease, but only of change. It was the substance or being of all things that are. The Stoics, it will be observed, use the term matter with the same confusing ambiguity with which we use it ourselves, now for sensible objects, which have shape and other qualities, now for the abstract conception of matter, which is devoid of all qualities. Both these first principles, it must be understood, were conceived of as bodies, though without form, the one everywhere interpenetrating the other. To say that the passive principle, or matter, is a body comes easy to us, because of the familiar confusion adverted to above but how could the active principle, or God, be conceived of as a body? The answer to this question may sound paradoxical. It is because God is a spirit. A spirit, in its original sense, meant air and motion. Now, the active principle was not air, but it was something which bore an analogy to it, namely ether. Ether in motion might be called a spirit as well as air in motion. It was in this sense that Chrysippus defined the thing that is to be a spirit moving itself into and out of itself, or spirit moving itself to and fro. From the two first principles, which are ungenerated and indestructible, must be distinguished the four elements, which, though ultimate for us, yet were produced in the beginning by God, and are destined some day to be reabsorbed into the divine nature. These, with the Stoics, were the same which had been accepted since Empedocles, namely earth, air, fire, and water. The elements, like the two first principles, were bodies. Unlike them, they were declared to have shape as well as extension. An element was defined as that out of which things at first come into being, and into which they are at last resolved. In this relation did the four elements stand to all the compound bodies which the universe contained. The terms earth, air, fire, and water had to be taken in a wide sense, earth meaning all that was of the nature of earth, air all that was of the nature of air, and so on. Thus in the human frame the bones and sinews pertained to earth. The four qualities of matter, hot, cold, moist, and dry, were indicative of the presence of the four elements. Fire was the source of heat, air of cold, water of moisture, and earth of dryness. Between them, the four elements made up the unqualified being called matter. All animals and other compound natures on earth had in them representatives of the four great physical constituents of the universe. But the moon, according to Chrysippus, consisted only of fire and air while the sun was pure fire. While all compound bodies were resolvable into the four elements, there were important differences among the elements themselves. Two of them, fire and air, were light, the other two, water and earth, were heavy. By light was meant that which tends away from its own center, by heavy that which tends toward it the two light elements stood to the two heavy ones in much the same relation as the active to the passive principle generally. But further, fire had such a primacy as entitled it, if the definition of element were pressed, to be considered alone worthy of the name. For the three other elements arose out of it, and were to be again resolved into it. We should obtain a wholly wrong impression of what Bishop Berkeley calls the philosophy of fire, if we set before our minds in this connection the raging element, whose strength is in destruction. Let us rather picture to ourselves as the type of fire the benign and beatific solar heat, the quickener and fosterer of all terrestrial life. For, according to Zeno, there were two kinds of fire the one destructive, the other what we may call constructive, and which he called artistic. This latter kind of fire, which was known as ether, was the substance of the heavenly bodies, as it was also of the soul of animals, and of the nature of plants. Chrysippus, following Heraclitus, taught that the elements passed into one another by a process of condensation and rarefaction. Fire first became solidified into air, then air into water, and lastly water into earth. The process of dissolution took place in the reverse order, earth being rarefied into water, water into air, and air into fire. It is allowable to see in this old world doctrine an anticipation of the modern idea of different states of matter the solid, the liquid, and the gaseous, with a fourth beyond the gaseous, which science can still only guess at, and in which matter seems almost to merge into spirit. Each of the four elements had its own abode in the universe. Outermost of all was the ethereal fire, which was divided into two spheres, first that of the fixed stars, and next that of the planets. Below this lay the sphere of air, below this again that of water, and lowest, or in other words, most central of all, was the sphere of earth, the solid foundation of the whole structure. Water might be said to be above earth, because nowhere was there water to be found without earth beneath it, but the surface of water was always equidistant from the center, whereas earth had prominences which rose above water. Extension was essential to body, though shape was not. A body was that which has extension in three dimensions, length, breadth, and thickness. This was called also a solid body. The boundary of such a body was a surface, which was, that which possesses length and breadth only, but not depth. The boundary of a surface was a line which was length without breadth, as in Euclid, or that which has length only. Lastly, the boundary of a line was a point, which was declared to be the smallest sign. This definition is suggestive of the minima visibilia, or colored points, of Hume but we know that the Stoics did not allow that a line was made up of points, or a surface of lines, or a solid of surfaces. The Stoic definition, however, has the advantage over Euclids in telling us something positive about a point. The conception of a point as position without magnitude, which was current before the time of Euclid, BC 323-283, is better than either of them. A geometrical solid is not body, as we know it, or as the Stoics conceived it, for they regarded the universe as a plenum. Passivity with them seems to have occupied the place of resistance with us, as the attribute which distinguished body from void. When we say that the Stoics regarded the universe as a plenum, the reader must understand by the universe the cosmos, or ordered whole. Within this there was no emptiness, owing to the pressure of the celestial upon the terrestrial sphere but outside of this lay the infinite void, without beginning, middle, or end. This occupied a very ambiguous position in their scheme. It was not being, for being was confined to body, and yet it was there. It was, in fact, nothing, and that was why it was infinite. For as nothing cannot be a bound to anything, so neither can there be any bound to nothing but while bodiless itself, it had the capacity to contain body, a fact which enabled it, despite its non-entity, to serve, as we shall see, a useful purpose. Did the Stoics then regard the universe as finite or as infinite? In answering this question, we must distinguish our terms, as they did. The all, they said, was infinite, but the whole was finite, for the all was the cosmos and the void, whereas the whole was the cosmos only. This distinction we may suppose to have originated with the later members of the school, for Apollodorus noted the ambiguity of the word all as meaning one, the cosmos only, two, cosmos plus void. If then by the term universe we understand the cosmos, or ordered whole, we must say that the Stoics regarded the universe as finite. All being and all body which was the same thing with body, had necessarily bounds. It was only not-being which was boundless. Another distinction, due this time to Chrysippus himself, which the Stoics found it convenient to draw, was between the three words void, place, and space. Void was defined as the absence of body. Place was that which was occupied by body. The term space was reserved for that which was partly occupied and partly unoccupied. As there was no center of the cosmos unfilled by body, space, it will be seen, was another name for the all. Place was compared to a vessel that was full, void to one that was empty, and space to the vast wine-cask, such as that in which Diogenes made his home, which was kept partly full, but in which there was always room for more. The last comparison must, of course, not be pressed, for, if space be a cask, it is one without top, bottom, or sides. But while the Stoics regarded our universe as an island of being and an ocean of void, they did not admit the possibility that other such islands might exist beyond our ken. The spectacle of the starry heavens, which presented itself nightly to their gaze in all the brilliancy of a southern sky— that was all there was of being. Beyond that lay nothingness. Democritus or the Epicureans might dream of other worlds, but the Stoics contended for the unity of the cosmos, as staunchly as the Mohammedans for the unity of God, for with them the cosmos was God. In shape they conceived of it as spherical, on the ground that the sphere was the perfect figure, and was also the best adapted for motion not that the universe as a whole moved, the earth lay at its center, spherical and motionless, and round it coursed the sun, moon, and planets, fixed each in its several sphere, as in so many concentric rings, while the outermost ring of all, which contained the fixed stars, wheeled round the rest with an inconceivable velocity. The tendency of all things in the universe to the center kept the earth fixed in the middle, as being subject to an equal pressure on every side. The same cause also, according to Zeno, kept the universe itself at rest in the void. But in an infinite void, it could make no difference whether the whole were at rest or in motion it may have been a desire to escape the notion of a migratory whole, which led Zeno to broach the curious doctrine that the universe has no weight, as being composed of elements whereof two are heavy and two are light. Air and fire did indeed tend to the center, like everything else in the cosmos, but not till they had reached their natural home. Till then they were of an upward-going nature. It appears, then, that the upward and downward tendencies of the elements were held to neutralize one another, and so leave the universe devoid of weight. The beauty of the universe was a topic on which the Stoics delighted to descant. This was manifest from its form, its color, its size, and its embroidered vesture of stars. Its form was that of a sphere, which was as perfect among solid as the circle among plane figures— and for the same reason, namely that every point on the circumference was equidistant from the center. Its color was in the main the deep azure of the heavens, darker and more lustrous than purple, indeed the only hue intense enough to reach our eyes at all through such a vast interjacent tract of air. In size, which is an essential element of beauty, it was of course beyond compare. And then there was the glory of— the star-eyed flash of heaven, time's fair embroidery, work of cunning hand. The universe was the only thing which was perfect in itself, the one thing which was an end in itself. All other things were perfect indeed as parts, when considered with reference to the whole, but were none of them ends in themselves, unless man could be deemed so, who was born to contemplate the universe and imitate its perfections. Thus, then, did the Stoics envisage the universe on its physical side, as one, finite, fixed in space, but revolving round its own center, earth, beautiful beyond all things, and perfect as a whole. But it was impossible for this order and beauty to exist without mind. The universe was pervaded by intelligence, as man's body is pervaded by his soul. But, as the human soul, though everywhere present in the body, is not present everywhere in the same degree, so it was with the world-soul. The human soul presents itself not only as intellect, but also in the lower manifestations of sense, growth, and cohesion. It is the soul which is the cause of the plant-life, which displays itself more particularly in the nails and hair, it is the soul, also, which causes cohesion among the parts of the solid substances, such as bones and sinews, that make up our frame. In the same way, the world-soul displayed itself in rational beings as intellect, in the lower animals as mere soul, in plants as nature or growth, and in inorganic substances as holding or cohesion. To this lowest stage add change, and you have growth or plant nature, Super-add to this fantasy and impulse, and you rise to the soul of irrational animals. At a yet higher stage, you reach the rational and discursive intellect, which is peculiar to man among mortal natures. We have spoken of soul as the cause of the plant life in our bodies, but plants were not admitted by the Stoics to be possessed of soul in the strict sense. What animated them was nature, or as we have called it above, growth. Nature, in this sense of the principle of growth, was defined by the Stoics as a constructive fire, proceeding in a regular way to production, or a fiery spirit endowed with artistic skill. That nature was an artist needed no proof, since it was her handiwork that human art essayed to copy. But she was an artist who combined the useful with the pleasant, aiming at once at beauty and convenience. In the widest sense, nature was another name for providence, or the principle which held the universe together. But, as the term is now being employed, it stood for that degree of existence which is above cohesion and below soul. From this point of view it was defined as, quote, a cohesion subject to self-originated change in accordance with seminal reasons, effecting and maintaining its results in definite times, and reproducing in the offspring the characteristics of the parent. Unquote. This sounds about as abstract as Herbert Spencer's definition of life, but it must be borne in mind that nature was all the time a spirit, and as such a body. It was the body of a less subtle essence than soul. Similarly, when the Stoics spoke of cohesion, they are not to be taken as referring to some abstract principle like attraction. Cohesions, said Chrysippus, quote, are nothing else than airs, for it is by these that bodies are held together. And of the individual qualities of things which are held together by cohesion, it is the air which is the compressing cause, which in iron is called hardness, in stone thickness, and in silver whiteness not only solidity then but also colors which zeno called the first schematisms of matter were regarded as due to the mysterious agency of air in fact qualities in general were but blasts and tensions of the air which gave form and figure to the inert matter underlying them as the man is in one sense the soul in another the body and in a third the union of both so it was with the cosmos. The word was used in three senses, one, God, two, the arrangement of the stars, etc., three, the combination of both. The cosmos, as identical with God, was described as an individual made up of all being, who is incorruptible and ungenerated, the fashioner of the ordered frame of the universe, who, at certain periods of time, absorbs all being into himself, and again generates it from himself. Thus the cosmos, on its external side, was doomed to perish, and the mode of its destruction was to be by fire, a doctrine which has been stamped upon the world's belief down to the present day. What was to bring about this consummation was the soul of the universe becoming too big for its body which it would eventually swallow up altogether. In the efflagration, when everything went back to the primeval ether, the universe would be pure soul, and alive equally through and through. In this subtle and attenuated state, it would require more room than before, and so expand into the void, contracting again when another period of cosmic generation had set in. Hence the Stoic definition of the void or infinite, as that into which the cosmos is resolved at the efflagration. In this theory of the contraction of the universe out of an ethereal state, and ultimate return to the same condition, one sees a resemblance to the modern scientific hypothesis of the origin of our planetary system out of the solar nebula, and its predestined end in the same. Especially is this the case with the form in which the theory was held by Cleanthes, who pictured the heavenly bodies as hastening to their own destruction by dashing themselves, like so many gigantic moths, into the sun. Cleanthes, however, did not conceive mere mechanical force to be at work in this matter. The grand apotheosis of suicide which he foresaw was a voluntary act, for the heavenly bodies were gods, and were willing to lose their own in a larger life. Thus all the deities except Zeus were mortal, or at all events perishable. Gods, like men, were destined to have an end some day. They would melt in the great furnace of being, as though they were made of wax or tin. Zeus, then, would be left alone with his own thoughts, or, as the Stoics sometimes put it, Zeus would fall back upon providence. For by providence they meant the leading principle or mind of the whole, and by Zeus, as distinguished from Providence, this mind together with the cosmos, which was to it as body. In the efflagration, the two would be fused into one, in the single substance of ether, and then in the fullness of time there would be a restitution of all things. Everything would come round again exactly as it had been before. Alter e retum tefus, Et altera cui ve hat argo delectos heroas, erunt de altera bella, atque iterum a magnes magnis mitetur Achilles. To us, who have been taught to pant for progress, this seems a dreary prospect. But the Stoics were consistent optimists, and did not ask for a change in what was best they were content that the one drama of existence should enjoy a perpetual run without perhaps too nice a consideration for the actors death intermitted life but did not end it for the candle of life which was extinguished now would be kindled again hereafter being and not-being came round in endless succession for all save him into whom all being was resolved and out of whom it emerged again as from the vortex of some Aeonian maelstrom. End of chapter 5